Podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Creepy Tech Podcast. This episode is also sponsored by Ivacy VPN. I've been using a VPN for the past two years, and I recommend it to anyone and everyone that uses public Wi-Fi, travels a lot, or just ends up using hotspots to save on their mobile data plans. Ivacy VPN is super affordable and it's a secure way to protect yourself from companies who are collecting your data and profiting off of you. Ivacy VPN also protects you from hackers looking to steal your information. Since I've been recommending it for a while, I found you a way to start protecting your information. And as a thank you to you guys, Ivacy VPN is offering a 20% off discount to Creepy Tech listeners. You can use the discount code TECH20 at checkout on their website, ivacy.com. That's I-V-A-C-Y.com. If you have any questions about using a VPN, feel free to send me a DM and I can walk you through it. Last of all, this week's podcast episode is also brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Do you need to hire somebody? I know that it's tough finding the perfect candidate for a new position, going through applications, resumes, job boards, it takes up way too much time. So ZipRecruiter will simplify this whole process for you. They actually send your open jobs to over 100 of the web's leading job sites and then they use their powerful matching technology to scan thousands of resumes to find you perfect candidates. Not only that, they also invite the candidates that match your posting to apply for your job, and you can even add screening questions so that you can spend less time searching and much more time focusing on the best applicants. It's so simple and effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter, they usually get a quality candidate within the first day. As a thank you for listening to the Creepy Tech Podcast, you can actually try ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash L Champole, that's L-S-H-O-M-P-O-L-E. Or you can head over to lchampole.com and use our my ZipRecruiter link at the top of the page. That's all the deals that I have for you this week. Let me know if you do end up using them and how the experience is. If you hate it, please let me know so I can stop advertising for them. All right, thank you. Okay, let's jump right into this week's episode. So this week, we will be doing a deep dive into the tech side of coronavirus, uh, specifically how companies and governments are using apps to track, monitor, and assist with slowing down the spread of the virus. Now, the end of December um, 2019, media outlets have been discussing the spread of a respiratory virus after the World Health Organization was alerted by the Chinese government. According to an article on pharmaceutical technology, on the pharmaceutical technology website, quote, the 2019 Nobel coronavirus, um, officially named as COVID-19 by the WHO, has spread to 97 more countries apart from China and has been alarming public health authorities across the world, end quote. As of April 13th, 2020, the number of confirmed positive cases surpassed 1.85 million globally with a death toll of more than 110,000 people. Um, yeah, and it's resulted in a global lockdown. 
As of April 25th, 2020, globally, there are more than 2,721,000 total confirmed cases of COVID-19, and more than 191 deaths have been reported. I know um, I recorded this a couple of weeks ago, so those numbers are significantly higher than what I just stated now. Why don't we begin with what it is, why everyone is on edge, and how it spreads before we get to the tech side of things. Now, in the past, there have been other cases of coronaviruses. This term is used to describe a large family of viruses, which all basically cause similar symptoms in individuals. AppState.edu explains that the official name for the disease is coronavirus disease COVID-19. The official name for the virus is severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus. Uh, both of which might sound familiar if you remember the SARS and MERS epidemics that occurred in the early 2000s. Um, I believe one of them was called the swine flu, which may ring a bell. Coronavirus 19 is also referred to as COVID-19, a shortened version of this particular virus name. One of the most important questions is how exactly does COVID-19 spread? Initially, it's been reported on in the media that China is actually covering up their numbers as well as at the beginning of this whole pandemic, it looks like they did cover up the fact that you can spread it from person to person. The CDC website explains that the first infections were linked to a live animal market. This is currently in debate. But the virus is now spreading from person to person. It's important to note that person to person spread can happen on a continuum. Some viruses are highly contagious, like measles, while other viruses are less so. The virus that causes COVID 19 seems to be spreading easily and sustainably in the community, and this is quote unquote community spread. Community spread means that people have been infected with the virus in an area, including some who are not sure how or where exactly they became infected, meaning that those in close contact, typically six feet, um, typically around six feet, uh, with infected individuals for prolonged periods of time have a higher chance of becoming infected. And this is one of the reasons that governments and the CDC slash the WHO are requiring infected individuals to self-quarantine for 14 days. Now, symptoms can range from mild to severe, and from what has been reported, the symptoms can include the following. Number one, a mild to severe respiratory illness. Number two, a fever of 100 degrees or more. Number three, a cough. And last of all, number four, difficulty breathing. Over the past couple of weeks, um, as this whole pandemic has been unfolding, we have seen that there have been other stranger symptoms or symptoms that don't really fit those four categories. One of which happens to be doctors have been noticing sores on children's feet, as well as swelling of the toes and some mild to severe cognitive impairment as a result. I believe a few people have also reported that they did have strokes or blood clotting that led to strokes. The initial four symptoms that I did mention don't sound too different from a common, a common cold or the flu. And we've seen this being reported by some media outlets initially, such as Healthline.com, who released an article titled, quote, why you don't need to panic about the new coronavirus, end quote. 
as well as large names in the medical industry. According to John Hopkins Medicine, as of March 8, 2020, the flu is showing much more of an impact on Americans than COVID-19. End quote. Now, this is something that they did state on their website, but I believe that currently that's being debated just because of how quickly this whole thing is spreading. But if we do take a look at the numbers, uh, the seasonal flu infects an estimated 1 billion cases worldwide, 9.3 billion to 45 million cases in the U.S. per year. The seasonal flu ends up killing a rough total of 291,000 to 646,000 people worldwide and 12,000 to 61,000 deaths in the U.S. per year. So just looking at the numbers, the more recent numbers, we can see that, that COVID-19 has quickly surpassed those numbers. And initially, it was safe to say that John Hopkins was not entirely incorrect by making this statement. However, the key difference between the flu and COVID-19 is that we simply are unaware and unprepared for such a quickly spreading, previously unknown virus like COVID-19. Scientists have been studying and creating vaccines for the seasonal flu since the early 1900s. The first flu vaccine was actually created in 1938, and ever since then, as new flu strains emerge, scientists are ready and able to adapt their blueprint to modify current vaccines. This means that most individuals today can choose to get the seasonal flu shot to protect themselves against new flu strains pretty quickly. Additionally, due to the availability of resources and information, most of us know how to deal with the flu symptoms pretty well, we know how to recover from the flu, and we know when we are seeing signs that we need to seek help, and we do so pretty quickly. On top of that, the hospital infrastructure that's currently set up has never been pushed to the limits where there's too many people seeking help at the same time because of the flu like we're seeing with COVID-19. Since COVID-19 has never been seen before, we simply don't know what to do, and this has caused the worldwide panic, which is affecting literally every industry in existence. Enough of that. Uh, I know you guys came here for the darker side of this whole pandemic. So let's get started. We literally have every known resource available to us in the palms of our hands. The World Wide Web has provided access to a wealth of information that is as incredible as it is terrifying. On a regular day, I can pull out my phone, request a ride to some destination, and I step outside and there's a car waiting to drive me there. It's safe to say that ride-sharing apps have become an essential part of our society. They've been able to integrate seamlessly into our day-to-day -day lives, almost to the point that we often don't pause to question the dangers that we may be opening ourselves up to. As I was scrolling through my news feeds recently, one article in particular caught my attention. The title, quote, Uber suspending some rider accounts to fight the spread of coronavirus, end quote. And of course, I just had to read it. <laughs> so the article on digital trends began with the statement, quote, Uber is doing its bit to prevent the spread of coronavirus by temporarily suspending the accounts of riders if it believes that they may have come into contact with someone carrying the virus. In Mexico, for example, Uber suspended the accounts of 240 riders that it said used one of two Uber vehicles that carried someone suspected of having the 
the virus, end quote. The article continues on to explain that at the time, there had been no confirmed cases of infected individuals in Mexico, that Uber had simply believed that since the individuals may have carried someone who was infected, that they may have been infected as a result. This poses a very interesting dilemma for both Uber and those working for the ride-sharing company. As I read on, I began to think about the information that Uber would need to be collecting on each and every one of us to be able to make such a decision. So I began my dive into Uber's privacy policy to see exactly what they collect and how they use it. The privacy policy states that Uber collects data provided by users to Uber, such as during account creation. They may use photos submitted by drivers and or delivery partners to verify their identities, such as through facial recognition technology, demographic data. They may collect demographic data about users, including the user's surveys. In some countries, they may also receive demographic data about users from third parties. They also collect data created using their services, such as location, app usage, and device data. In addition to that, they collect precise or approximate location data from users' mobile devices if enabled by the user to do so. For riders, delivery recipients, and renters, Uber collects this data when the Uber app is running in the foreground. Uber may also collect this data when the app is running in the background of a user's mobile device. Riders, delivery recipients, and renters may use the Uber apps without enabling Uber to collect location data from their mobile devices. They also collect data from other sources, such as Uber partners and third parties that use Uber APIs. Uh, they also collect data about how users interact with their services. This includes data, data such as access dates and times, app features, or pages viewed, app crashes and other system activity, type of browser, and third-party sites or services used before interacting with our services. In some cases, they may also collect this data through cookies, pixels, tags, and similar tracking technologies that create and maintain unique identifiers. They enable users to communicate with each other and Uber through Uber's mobile apps and websites. So, they do collect that data as well. They also collect data, any data that is necessary to provide these services. Uber receives some data regarding the calls, texts, or other communications, including the date and time of the communications and the content of the communications. Uber may also use this data for customer support services, including to resolve disputes between users. They may also collect data for safety and security purposes, uh, to improve their products and services, and for analytics. They may also collect information from publicly available sources, meaning things like social media profiles, Google searches, etc. Basically, if you post it, it's fair game. Now, that's a lot, but the privacy also states that they may share any of the information collected from you to prevent or protect users and drivers from harm with law enforcement officials, public health officials, other government authorities, airports, if required by airport authorities, um, or other third parties as necessary to enforce their terms of service, user agreements, or other policies. Ooh, that was a lot. Okay, so. Reading through this, uh, it's pretty evident that with the amount of information that Uber collects on every single user or driver, it's pretty easy for them to make a calculated estimate of exactly which users and drivers may be at risk for infections. 
uh, leading to the suspensions of their accounts basically immediately. What I found most interesting about this whole thing is um, because ride-sharing apps are relatively new, these companies have never really had to deal with pandemics of this scale, uh, meaning they haven't had to formulate a plan on how to address and minimize the risk of infections to individuals. At the time of the article, Uber had no plan on how to compensate drivers that all of a sudden lost their income as a result of an estimated assumption of infection, which led to the account suspension. According to an article on the Daily Beast, it was not clear whether Uber had contacted each driver and any of the 240 passengers to alert them that they may have been in contact with an infected individual. And I believe that in situations such as this one, companies should be required to alert each individual, provide assistance with testing, and clearly communicate with all affected parties the available resources that they do have to them, and provide them a clear plan for the next steps. However, companies in the gig economy may argue that freelancers are not covered by the same regulating rules that employees and employers have. Since they're not actually employees of the respective companies, the loophole does exist and over the past few years, gig workers have been fighting against this. We are all entitled to safe working environments and companies placing our health and well-being at risk should be required to at the very least provide an assurance of safety or a plan on how they can assist us when things do go wrong. April 12th of 2020, Uber did actually update its sick leave policy to clarify the terms by which they would be compensating the drivers during this time. According to the Uber website, they have made the following changes to their policy. Number one, Uber launched a new work hub in the driver app, which could help drivers find more working opportunities, uh, whether with the Uber services like Uber Eats or even at another company. They're also developing resources to make it easier for these drivers to request financial assistance. Number two, they have begun distributing free disinfectants to drivers and they've purchased tens of millions of ear loop face masks, uh, stating that at this time, the supply does not meet the demand, but they are actively working to provide this service to all drivers as quickly as possible. Number three, they have also launched COVID-19 resources, which is an in-app resource center dedicated to safety information and updates from Uber. Number four, over the last month, they have provided financial assistance to drivers and delivery people diagnosed with COVID-19 or who have been ordered to self-quarantine or self-isolate by a doctor or public health authority. Number five, due to complaints and feedback from their workforce, they have begun focusing their assistance on those of you who are actively driving and delivering during this crisis. And last of all, they are expanding eligibility to include drivers and delivery people who have been told to individually quarantine because they have pre-existing conditions that put them at a high risk for suffering serious illness from COVID-19. Uh, basically, this just means that more people are eligible than were in the previous older policy. They have also established maximum person payment to make this new policy more sustainable. So the one catch is that to be eligible, you must provide written documentation from a licensed doctor or a government public health official showing that, number one, 
you have an active case of COVID-19 or two, you were individually ordered to self-quarantine because you're suspected to have an active case of COVID-19 or number three, you were individually ordered to self-quarantine because you have a pre-existing health condition that puts you at a higher risk for serious illness due to COVID-19. So with a lack of accessibility to testing, this makes it a bit difficult simply because drivers cannot easily get the required documentation needed to apply for these benefits. And I'm sure you've all seen the media coverage of testing availability. And uh, we all know that if you're simply not sick enough to require hospitalization, but have a majority of the symptoms, you are advised to stay home and self-quarantine without the paperwork. No paperwork basically equals no benefits at this time. The Uber website explains that the changes to the sick leave policy include that when you apply, your Uber account will temporarily be put on hold as a safety measure to help limit the spread of COVID-19. Even though your account is on hold, we'll still need to review your application to determine if you do qualify for financial assistance. The explanation of what benefits you actually get states the following. Number one, new policy. Look at your average weekly earnings over the three months before your application for assistance. They will continue to offer 14 days of financial assistance and they will set a maximum payment amount. The maximum amounts differ by city because they're basically based on typical earnings for drivers and delivery people in each city. And number three, they will continue their policy of giving you a minimum of $50 if you drive or deliver in the U.S., even if you have only done one trip. The minimum payment will differ by country. They finish off the new policy by stating that they will be setting maximum payouts for each driver that applies, which could mean that some drivers will be receiving less than they usually earn while driving. At the end of this dive into Uber, I did decide to give them a little bit of credit since this could end up being a substantial hit to the company itself, and they do state that they will continue to ask for feedback and adjust accordingly. That was quite a bit. Uh, there's some serious repercussions there just in terms of employee and employer relationships as well as the importance of our health at the end of the day. That's all I have on Uber right now, but I will be updating that as they update their policies, which I'm sure they will be doing over the next couple of years, to say the least, over the next couple of years. Now, let's take a look into the apps that specifically track the spread of COVID-19. When it comes to our behavior and the places that we go, it's safe to say that over the past few years, it has become much harder for us to keep this kind of information private. When we drive from our house to a new store or a friend's house, we use our cell phone to give us turn-by-turn -turn directions. When we hear a word that we don't know, I quickly unlock my phone and I search on Google. Every single thing that we do in our daily lives is then logged in as a data point, an almost permanent diary of our thoughts, actions, and behavior. Today, data has almost become a currency. Companies collect what we provide via social media, our searches, and sometimes even our conversations, like when we use AI personal assistants like Alexa, which I'll cover later on this season. Um, yeah, all of that is logged into a system somewhere. So when it comes to our current situation, we are seeing that COVID-19 has introduced the need to collect more real-time data. Large companies and even the government can now justify their need to know where we go, who we meet, what we bought, 
and even what we are worried about. According to an article on The Verge, on Friday, Apple and Google announced the system for tracking the spread of the new coronavirus, allowing users to share data through Bluetooth Low Energy also referred to as BLE, transmissions, and they approved apps from health organizations. The new system, which is laid out in a series of documents and white papers, would use short-range Bluetooth communications to establish a voluntary contact tracing network, keeping extensive data on phones that have been in close proximity to each other. Official apps from public health authorities will get access to this data, and users who download them can report if they have been diagnosed with COVID-19. The system will also alert people who download them to whether they were in close contact with an infected person. Since the app itself would use Bluetooth instead of GPS, your physical location would not necessarily be logged. Instead, any nearby phones that are using the app would be logged. If at any point in the near future, which I'm guessing is roughly a few days, um, if any of those users that were close to you notify the app that they do have the virus, then you would also be notified that you were in close proximity to a person that tested positive. They would then advise you to get tested as well, just in case. They've also stated that the app itself has set up protections that prevent specific users from being easily identified. Now, I've included a quick infographic on the episode um, on the website elshampole.com that explains how the app itself works. While this is going to assist with tracking of the spread of the virus, there are some downsides to installing the actual app. Uh, for instance, number one, the app itself does not take into account how long users were in close proximity, whether they were talking to each other, sharing the same card reader while checking out at the grocery store, or even whether you are actually in the same room since it's simply logging proximity based on Bluetooth reach. You could be in the same building but separated by a wall from the other individual but the app wouldn't necessarily know that. Number two, it also doesn't take into account how up-to-date your phone is or how good of a connection you have. Meaning if an infected individual is right next to you but the Bluetooth isn't enabled until they get back home, meaning it wouldn't pick up on that either and notify you because it simply wouldn't have that data. Developers would need to take into account the possibilities of hackers submitting false information, like testing results either positive or negative depending on what their intentions are. This could lead to an increase in spreading unnecessary fear, uh, misinformation. It could also lead to some serious mental health concerns for cases where individuals are notified of positive contact as a result of pranksters submitting fake testing results. These developers will need to figure out a way to verify that individuals were tested via reputable and verifiable means. So I'm sure most of you have heard that large warehouses and even smaller businesses or schools have had to shut down because of employees or students calling in sick and stating falsely that they may have the virus symptoms. As a precaution and to follow government guidelines, these businesses were required to shut down and disinfect their facilities, meaning an increase in downtime, and a loss of income for all of their employees. This is something that does happen, so any technology introduced to assist with tracing would need to account for false reports. It would need to, at the very least, account for false reports. All right, that's all I have for you this week. I know this one was a pretty long episode, but there's just so much to cover. 
Uh, I still have a lot more to cover on coronavirus, so you guys can expect a few more episodes on that this season. If you find information that you'd love to share with me or you think that I need to cover as part of this coronavirus series, feel free to message me what you found either by email, DM on socials, or you can actually now leave me a voice message on the Creepy Tech Anchor page. I think this is something that I'll definitely continue to cover, especially as this whole thing unfolds. Other than that, if you do have a quick moment, head over to the Apple Podcast app where you can leave me a review. I'd really like to know what you think about what is currently going on. You can also follow me on IG at tech underscore creepy and on Twitter at tech creepy. Last of all, you can find the links I mentioned in this episode on my website, elshampole.com. Okay, until next time. Tech, 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 tech,